Fig Tree Ministries is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. Our ongoing operations rely entirely upon the generous donations from our supporters. If you've been impacted by our faith lessons, we ask that you would consider including Fig Tree Ministries as part of your annual giving plan. Secure giving is easy through the donate page at our website, figtreeteaching.com. We've also included a link below in the description section of this video. With your support, Fig Tree Ministries can expand our reach into the world, helping others just like you deepen their understanding of the Bible and connecting these principles to the transformative power of individual spiritual growth. All of this is so that we as a community can positively impact the kingdom of God in the world today. So may God richly bless you in all of your studies. So we are now on Sea of Galilee. I was telling someone the other day, ah, you know, we just started a series on the Sea of Galilee. And then I was like, oh, wait a minute. This is week 14. It's actually week 15. So we just started a series on the Sea of Galilee 15 weeks ago. Just time just flies right by. So this is Sea of Galilee, the the 14th part, we did that part on number three, and I didn't entitle it Sea of Galilee. And we're in the midst of a little mini-series within this overall Sea of Galilee where we're talking about the zealots. And that was last week. So if you didn't, weren't able to see the video on Sea of Galilee part 13, that was our introduction to the zealots. And then today... We're going to go in to look a little bit, we're going to bring the time frame closer to Jesus to say what was it that was leading these people to ultimately be violent revolutionaries for God. They were doing it in the name of God. And that's the main question we want to ask. So just a couple housekeeping notes for Fig Tree Ministries. These are the places that you can find us. Of course, our YouTube channel is the main place, and part of what I like to do is give you pictures, because pictures help your mind. It gives you something concrete. When you read the Bible, you're going to put a picture in your mind, whether you know it or not. But it might not be accurate, and everyone's picture might be different. But if I can show you what's there on the ground, well, then you get something that's a little bit more concrete and harder to deviate from as you're thinking about the text. So YouTube is the main one, but we also put it on Apple Podcasts. We noted last week that we're now on Spotify, so you can follow us on Spotify as well. Facebook, we post to our Facebook page if you want to follow there. And as always, subscribe, uh, give us a thumbs up, a like, share it with your community. We want to be able to bring the Bible to life for people in a way that maybe they haven't seen before. And we love getting comments. We know that religious topics are often uh, contentious, so we even like your comments when you disagree with us. Okay, the other part is uh, handouts. So we always include a handout in the description section of both of YouTube and the uh, description section of the podcast. You can find a handout to follow along. That helps you, again, retain what you can they say that repetition is the mother of all learning. So when you learn, you learn by repetition. So it may take listening to it once, going back, reading the text again, 
going back, listening to it again, and then it'll, it'll solidify more in your mind, and the notes can help you do that. All right, so that's just a little bit of housekeeping. So now we're going to move on. We're going we're gonna to talk about the, the zealots today. I always try to pick a picture for you to help us bring together something about the teaching. And this one, this background picture, is an amazing mosaic floor. And this is in a city called Sephoris. Now, Sephoris doesn't show up in your Bible, and many of you probably haven't heard of Sephoris, but it's going to intersect with the Zealots and with Jesus. This city was, was, there was a huge building project going on in the first century, and scholars will almost immediately say, well, the fact that this was only four miles away from Nazareth, if Jesus was a carpenter, a builder, and this was being built, big construction site, him and his father would likely be working over at Sephoris, big Greek city being rebuilt in the first century. What you see there on the floor, that mosaic, today people call it the Mona Lisa of Galilee. Now, this, this mosaic is actually not from Jesus' time. It's later, but it's one of the things that when you go to Sephoris, everybody wants to see, because it's absolutely stunning that the, the artwork that they were able to create. So that's the Mona Lisa of Galilee. Anyways, we'll be swinging through Sephoris multiple times today. The main text, and don't turn in your Bible yet, we're going we're to finish the, with this text. So at the very end, we'll come back to this text. But let me just show you what Acts 5, 37 says. It's part of a dialogue that's happening where the person standing up is giving a bit of history about movements that showed up. And Gamaliel is the, the person who stands up in the Sanhedrin, and he says, look, after him, this other guy, the previous sentence, Judas the Galilean appeared. Now, that's the name you want to remember as we get, go through this. We're going to see him show up later in the lesson. Judas the Galilean, also known as Judas from Gamla. And Gamla was that city we looked at last week that was the zealot headquarters. So Judas is one of the leaders. So it says, After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census, and he led a band of people in revolt. Sound like a zealot? Yep. He too was killed, we assume, by Herod Antipas, and his followers scattered. So without their leader, they could no longer come together. So just hang on to that name. We'll come, like I said, we'll come back to this text at the very end. I'll have you turn in your Bible at that time to take a closer look. The main point of trying to learn about the zealots, their mindset, what they were attempting to do, the energy that they put into trying to bring about the kingdom of God, right? What were their goals and their methods? The reason we want to understand this is that there's always, in every point in time, people who have this type of mindset you're going to bump up against. So the interesting thing is, they saw Jesus as Messiah. It wasn't that they, did, they, they didn't like him as Messiah. They didn't like the type of Messiah he was. They didn't want a Messiah that said, forgive your enemy. They wanted a Messiah to say, let's go fight the Romans. So they saw Jesus as Messiah. If you can heal the dead, that's a great 
tool to have in, in battle, isn't it? You know, as people die, you just bring them back to life. I mean, it's a never-ending man, you, you, you end all of your manpower issues. The key is, though, as we learn about this, it helps build that cultural context that gives, brings so much of that New Testament to life that isn't stated. So, this is what we're doing. We're, we're going deeper and deeper into the Zealots. So, last week, quick review. The Zealots were revolutionary. They're fighting against oppressive governments. So, the First, it, was, it started with the Greeks. Then when Rome showed up, and as Jesus, of course, comes on the scene, it's Rome in charge, and the zealots are revolutionary against that government that is now over them. They're terribly anti-Rome. Their stated purpose, though, is to bring about the kingdom of God. They want to usher in the kingdom of God. And the problem is that they took on, as their method, violence. So they would murder a Roman if they could catch him on the road. They would murder a collaborator of Rome. If they didn't think that you were resisting Rome or that you were going along with them, they might take you out. They would kidnap even Jews that seemed to be participating with the Romans. So they went to violence. And there will always be, in every population across all of time, people who are zealot-like. They have a vision of, say, you could call it utopia. They have a vision. Sometimes groups say, hey, look, our stated vision is peace, but we're going to bring about that peace. Our only method is violence. And you find that throughout time. These revolutionary-type movements rise and fall with certain periods of time. So, for instance, I, I've mentioned this book before, but it's, a, it's an excellent book about a time in American history so that we can understand the type of revolutionary movement that happened. This was late 60s, early 70s. So, it's a book by, by Brian Burrow. The book is called Days of Rage, America's Radical Underground, the FBI, and the Forgotten Age of Revolutionary Violence. This is the early 70s. There were bombings that happened almost daily in America. They thought that the way to bring about their political aims was through violence. There's a, if you want to look it up, there's a, a gentleman by the name of Marcus Foster. Marcus Foster was the superintendent of Oakland schools in the early 70s. And there was a group that didn't think he was radical enough, so they had him assassinated. I mean, you can't... There were assassinations happening in America in order to create, get your political gain. So this can happen here in the United States, and it does happen here in the United States, and it very well might be happening right now here in the United States, where you get revolutionary-type fever, but where people turn violent. So if you want to read an excellent book about a time in America where this was violence was on the rise, this is a good book you can go to. But often, these, the people who are radical can't see any other way out other than violence. That's the point. And so in Jesus' day, this is what you have. You have rising and falling of revolutionary-type fever by a group that we would now call the zealots. But it happens everywhere.
Now, last week, this is a, again back to last week, we saw last week that they're taking their heroes from the Bible. You read your Bible and you take your heroes from the Bible and you try to act just like them. And the first person they recognize is Kana, that's the word for zealous, is God himself. God is a Kana God. In fact, Exodus 34, 14 says, my name is Kana, my name is zealous. That's what God says. So God is a zealous God. He is passionate about his relationship. We mentioned last week a whole story, Pinhas from Numbers 25, who was zealous for God, and he, he, he killed both a man and a woman who were desecrating the tabernacle. And then God said, I will make a covenant of peace with him because of his zeal. So that becomes your hero. You have Elijah. Elijah was a zealous prophet who called fire down from heaven and went up against the Baal prophets. So Elijah is a, is a zealous prophet, and you want to be just like that. And people thought John the Baptist was Elijah. So John the Baptist, you know, when, when they show up to John the Baptist and he calls him, you brood of vipers, right? He's not following uh, Dale Carnegie's how to win friends and influence others. You show up and you get called a brood of vipers. He is passionate as a prophet. They recognize Elijah is just, John the Baptist is just like Elijah. Then you have heroes that are in the, in the more near future. That was the Maccabees we talked about. And the Maccabees overthrew the Greek government. They would not submit to the Greeks. And because of that, we even have a, we have a holiday today. Hanukkah comes out of, that's how important that movement is. And Hanukkah is decidedly a political holiday. There's no way around it. You overthrew a government that was an oppressive government. So they're pulling from their Bible. They're pulling from their recent history. And these people become zealous for the Lord. Their energy is directed. They want to bring about the kingdom of God. They're doing it incorrectly. And Jesus is going to try to guide them. And unfortunately, they don't particularly like it when Jesus is attempting to guide them. But they're zealous for the Lord. All right, so that's part of the review that we did last week with the zealots. Now, if we look at, let me do a quick review geographically so you know what's going on. Sea of Galilee is what we've been on, and we're looking at all the regions around it. Capernaum, Kafar Nahum. The village of Nahum, Kafar Nahum, in Hebrew, Capernaum. That's where Jesus goes to settle his ministry. It's not in the middle of nowhere. It is right in this cauldron of political and religious tensions all around the lake. Right on the main road, Jesus is not shying away with his message. And this side of the lake are the religious Jews. We noted last week, sorry, this side of the lake being the northwest corner of the lake. If you go to the northeast corner, we noted last week, you have this city called Gamla. sits way back in Awadi, but that became the headquarters for the Zealots. So that's the northeast corner of the lake. So you have Gamla, that's where the Zealots, where they put their headquarters. You have the town of Bethsaida, and we noted all, the, there's five disciples from Bethsaida. They're definitely influenced by zealot thinking. Then you have, on the other side of the lake, right across from these zealots that are anti-Rome, you have a city that was 
Herod Antipas puts his capital city in 20 AD. He drops his capital city right across the lake from these anti-Roman zealots, and he names the city Tiberius after Caesar Tiberius, who was in power at the time. That's a political thumb in your eye. And then, of course, this side of the lake, the, the south east corner, you have the Decapolis. So you have the, the pagan tension, uh, the pagans and the religious Jews. There's tension all over the place. And one place we're going to look at today that we've, we've mentioned in the past is there's a mountain. It sits right behind Magdala. It's on the west side of the lake, about halfway down, and it's called Mount Arbel. This is going to become an important piece that, that enters our story with the zealots and their history. All right, we noted last week, there's a political divide, right? That Jordan River divides political lands, so that on this side of the land, this, this side being the east side where the zealots are, people refer to it as Batanea. It's also referred, and I just want to make sure I note this, Golanitis. Think Golan Heights. There's a city up there. Golanitis is the area, we, we would say Golan today. There's a, a village up there that it's named after, so Golanitis sounds like a disease you could catch, but it's not. That sits on that side, and sometimes you'll hear them called, they'll either be Batanea or Golanitis. On the west side of the lake, you have Galilee. So when Jesus is from Galilee, as we'll see in a minute, Nazareth is in Galilee, Capernaum's in Galilee. The moment you cross the Jordan River, you're in a completely different place. On the east side of the Jordan River, you have Herod Philip, and in Galilee, you have Herod Antipas. So two different kingdoms are divided. Herod Philip is not very politically motivated. He's not trying to become king. Herod Antipas is ambitious. He wants to be named a full king, and if you want that, you're going to have to show your loyalty to Rome, who's giving you power. So you're going to act to try to increase your position along with the Romans. Okay, so you even have political tensions going on. This was all last week, by the way, Sea of Galilee 13. When we ended last week, we, we talked about this, the Hebrew word kana. Kana is zealous, or zeal is the word kana. And we noted that there's even a city, a village in Galilee. We say Cana, but Cana. It's a little mountain village in Galilee. And you'll see why this becomes important. Was it a zealot town? Well, with a name like Cana, you might have an agenda. And we also noted that there's a disciple named Nathaniel who's from Cana. And so John. 21 verse 2 tells us this, that there was, he's, they're listing the disciples that were there that day, Simon Peter, Thomas, and then it says, Nathaniel of Cana, or Cana, in Galilee. I'll show you where that village is in a second here. And then I showed you last week that if you open up the Greek, so you want to look at the Greek behind our English text, is you get the word Cana with a K, K-A-N-A. But by the time you anglicize it, C-A-N-A, -A, and then we say Cana. So at the church, there's a room, the Cana room, but it's not. It's the Cana room. Go study the text. Be zealous for the Bible in the Cana room. 
We lose a sense when we say Cana. The importance of knowing the context of where these words are coming from. So let me show you a map real quick. There's again the Sea of Galilee. So everything west of the Sea of Galilee, so as you're heading towards the, the Mediterranean Sea, is the province of Galilee. That's where Jesus is from. You have Batanea or Galanitis, on that side of the Jordan. So that's the east side of the Jordan. Of course, last week we looked at Gamla and we looked at Bethsaida over there. And then if you notice, right below on your screen, right below the word Galilee, is a city, Cana. Now, you can't tell on that picture, but that's not where the main roads are. So that's in the mountains. And we'll see in a minute, there were rebels fighting the, the Romans in the mountains of Galilee. So it's not, it's definitely not on one of the main roads, even though it sits right next to a, a valley. Okay, so Cana is over there in Galilee. Next, where's Je where did Jesus grow up? Well, right here in Nazareth, just a little bit, again, to the west of the Sea of Galilee. There's Nazareth. It's kind of hard to see because the, the map has mountains, but Nazareth is right there. And four miles to the north is a city called Sephorus. That's where we saw the picture of the Mona Lisa of Galilee. So just to the north of where Jesus grew up, and Nazareth was a small town, little village, is a very large Greek city called Sephorus. Very important city in the first century. And many scholars will say, yep, that's likely where Jesus would have gone to build things, because there were building projects going on as he was growing up. All right, that's a lot of review and where, to show you where Cana is, but let me point something out about Sephorus. This city right here, Sephorus, was the administrative center for the province of Galilee. And Herod Antipas, when he first had his, when he was first put in charge of that area in Galilee, he put his own headquarters at Sephorus. So he had his original headquarters at Sephorus. Then, at, in about 20 AD, he moves, and he goes over here to, to the city right by the, by the Sea of Galilee, settles a new city, names it after the Caesar at the time, Caesar Tiberius, in 20 AD. And then 10 years later, Jesus shows up right in that spot. And again, you just have to think, how did the zealots feel when Herod Antipas decided to move his headquarters and put it right across the lake from you? And perhaps Herod Antipas wants to keep an eye on those zealots. When John the Baptist gets a following, they want to keep an eye on him. When Jesus starts getting a following, they're keeping an eye on him. What type of leader is this guy? What is he going to promote? Because they definitely don't want zealots rising up. Okay, hopefully that helps start build the picture of what's going on around the Sea of Galilee. Let me take you real quick to the city of Sephorus. I just want to show you, it was a large Greek and Roman city. So there was a, there's a theater there. Now, anytime you have a theater there, you know it's a Greek Hellenistic type city. Those little villages that are Jewish villages do not have theaters in them. Theaters are the way that Hellenism puts their worldview on display so that you'll follow it, you'll adopt it. It's like putting, a, putting your worldview in a Hollywood movie or putting it on television and all the kids watch it 
And that's just how what they do is they go along with it in life because you saw it in a theater. The god of that theater, Dionysus, that's the god of partying and wine. So you can imagine if your kids want to go off to Sephora to see a play, you're not real excited about it if you're a religious person. Sephora is a, it's an expansive city. It's quite large, very nice roads all over the place. Wide is the road or broad is the road that leads to destruction, a rabbi once said. So you have these wide, paved, very easy to walk path roads. Not Gamla, where you got to walk up a stony path that goes up a hill. So it's a, really an amazing place to go see. I'll show you. It was very wealthy. This is a dining hall. And I mentioned the god Dionysus of the theater. This dining hall had a triclinium. You would, you would dine around a three-sided table. And this mosaic was right in the middle of it. And the mosaic is of the god of wine, Dionysus having a drinking contest with Hercules. Apparently, as you're sitting there partying, you know, seeing the story of Dionysus in a drinking contest motivates you to, I guess, consume more wine or something. Really amazing um, mosaics. So that's Sephorus. Sephorus, just some data. Sephorus, as I mentioned, was the administrative center of Galilee under Herod the Great. So this was an important city. And here's where the zealots show up. In 4 BC, so this is right around the time Jesus is born and the death of Herod the Great, the zealots sack the royal armory at, at Sephorus and steal all the weapons for themselves. So the zealots are showing up. They're intersecting at Sephorus. So if Jesus worked there as a kid, he clearly knows the stories of what happened with the zealots showing up and stealing the weapons from the royal armory. We'll see this, who, who led that, that movement in a minute. As I've mentioned, there's a significant building going on during Jesus' life, and if he's a builder, if he's a tecton is the Greek word, we say carpenter, not a lot of wood that you build with in Israel, mostly stone. If he's a builder, him and his dad would have been over in Sephorus, most likely, building on some of those building projects, which means Jesus would have been exposed to the Greek Hellenistic way, ways of the world at the same time learning his Bible. And then, of course, I mentioned it was the original headquarters of Herod Antipas. So there's political things going on here with the city of Sephorus. Okay, let me just get a real quick sip of water. All right, so we are on... Uh, Right at the bottom of your first page, I'm going to do a quick review. It's, this is going to go much faster than I did last week. A quick review of the history leading up to the Zealots. What were they passionate about and why? So it goes all the way back to 586 BC. That's the, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem and the Babylonian exile, where the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar brings the Jews and exiles them over to Babylon. But it wasn't too long before Babylon falls. So 539, the Persians show up, and then they say, okay, you can go back and rebuild your temple. That's Cyrus. But you're still not really in charge. The Persian government is now over you. Then in 333, the Greeks show up. This is Alexander the Great. So again, hey, we let you live in your, in your country. You have a temple, but you're not in charge. So 
we're still governing over you. Then, about 175, and again, this is, um, that's a generality, just to simplify it, one of the Greek kings, Antiochus Epiphanes, said, I'm now going to force you into worshiping pagan gods. I'm going to outlaw Torah. I'm going to outlaw circumcision. And the people said, no way, and they rose up. So by 167, you have a group, the Maccabees. That's the Maccabees that rise up. And they will not go along with Antiochus Epiphanes, and they start a war. And out of that war, once they defeat the army and cleanse the temple, you get the holiday of Hanukkah. Now, from that point on, for the next 100 years, Israel's ruling itself. And this was very important because you get an influx of people now from Babylon that are going to come home. Hey, we're finally, we've got our kingdom back. We can now live out the kingdom of God in the land that God gave us. And many of them, because the area down in Judea was packed, they settled in Galilee. And that's where you get these little towns, Nazareth and Cana, and all those little towns that spring up in Galilee. So for about 100 years, you enjoy that self-rule until 63, when Rome shows up and takes it away from you and they're oppressive. And what we get is a series of revolts. We're going to walk through those today quickly until you get about 6 CE. So this is after Jesus' birth, the founding capital Z zealot movement. They're against Rome because it's the government that's now ruling over Israel. So last week we talked this period of time, Maccabees, this week, we're going to talk this period of time, that from about 50 BC all the way until the zealot community is actually how we would say capital Z zealot. What was the progression, and how were the Herods involved, and why were they so anti-Rome? So if you turn over your, to the back of your handout, I'm going to walk you through three different events, two different characters, and this will lead us to Jesus. So on the back of your handout, oh, by the way, I forgot to mention, so I sent you two handouts. The main one was following along this class. The second one is some quotes from the historian Josephus, because we're, we get the majority of our information comes from Josephus. So I'm going to be putting up some quotes from Josephus. They're on that second handout, so you can read them later. But it's where we get... Um, a lot of this data about the zealots. And, okay, let me just stop there. So the first one, the first character is a guy named Hezekiah. And if you look in the Jewish encyclopedia, they list him as Hezekiah the zealot. So Hezekiah was up in Galilee, and he was leading a, a revolt in Galilee sometime around 47 BC. He's, it's anti-Roman. Then Herod, so this is Herod who would eventually become the king. Herod becomes governor of Galilee. He's really young. He's not yet Herod the Great. That's later. He's at this point Herod the Mediocre, something like that. He's a young kid. He gets put in charge of Galilee. He's very ambitious, and he's going to prove to Rome that he, deserve, that he should be a king one day. And watch what I can do. And he's going to try to put down 
these movements, these uprisings, and he does it violently with the backing of Rome. Now, can you imagine that same guy becomes your king? How loyal are you to that? So it's Herod the Great who will eventually become Herod the Great. At this point, only the governor. And Herod has Hezekiah put to death. So when you put to death a zealot leader, that leader gets elevated into a godlike martyr status. So this is the beginning of a, of a family movement that will last 100 years. So this is the quote from Josephus, and I'm just going to read it real quick because I'm watching the time. This is where we know about this Hezekiah. So Josephus writes that Herod had gone up to Galilee, and finding there was one Hezekiah, a captain of a band of robbers. Now that's important. He's leading a group of people, and this the person who um, translated this translated it robbers. I'll show you. We'll, get, we'll talk about that at the end. But he's a captain of a band of robbers who overran the neighboring parts of Syria with a great troop of them. Now, the next little part, he seized him and slew him. The he there is Herod. Herod slew Hezekiah, as well as a whole bunch of the other robbers that were with him. So here's Herod, who would soon become your king, that's killed a whole bunch of Jewish people who are resisting Rome up in Galilee. So it's setting the precedent for what's going to happen in the future. That's Hezekiah, number one. The second, and this is number seven on your sheet. In 10 years later, 38, 39 to 38 BC, Herod is now king, and he's going to go put an end to these rebels that live up in the mountains of Galilee. And he goes on the offensive. And let me show you, this is from Josephus. And again, it's on that extra handout that I gave you. I added some details to make it more readable here. So during the winter of 38 to 39 BC, I added that while snow fell from God, this is how Josephus describes it, Herod came to Sepphoris. So there's our city, Sepphoris. That's the administrative center. And he planned to end the evil deeds of those bandits. That's the, the bandits is now another way to translate that word. But these are revolutionary people fighting Rome. And Herod is planning to put an end to them. And then it says, some of those bandits who were dwelling in caves. So where are those caves? Why is that important that we know they were dwelling in caves? And then it says, from Sephoris, again, he sent a cavalry troop and infantry out against them. Now, where are those caves that those people are hiding in? They're right at the Sea of Galilee. So here's Sephoris, and he sends his troops right over here to Mount Arbel. And I'll show you a picture in a minute. There's, it's riddled with caves. And the zealots, the people who were resisting, not capital Z yet, but the people who were resisting Rome, all ran up right behind that little village of Magdala, where Mary's from, and they all go up into these. Here's a picture of it. This is Mount Arbel from down below. It's got caves all over the place. And those zealots ran up to those caves and hid and were fighting from them. Here's another picture. If you, if you get a chance, it's a national park now. You can walk, you can climb up to the top of Mount Arbel. This is the pathway. You can see how steep that is, and you can see the Sea of Galilee in the background. But 
look at these caves. All over the place there's caves. And the men, the women, the children of those, the people who were resisting Rome were all living in those caves. So this is when, when, when Herod said, or when Josephus says they're living in the caves, and Herod's going to go fish them out of the caves. What they did was they created a pulley system with a basket, and they would lower the basket down those cliffs with Roman soldiers inside the basket with hooks, and they would pull you out of the cave, and you'd fall to your death. And if they couldn't pull you out, they'd, light, they'd throw fire in and light the cave on fire. Brutal. But these are, the, these are your ancestors now that are having this done to them by the king of the Jews. I mean, it's crazy. But it's a violent trying to put down the, the zealots up in Galilee, right next to where they live. So if we go back to this map, it happens right here on this mountainside. And then the, Josephus says that Herod the Great chased them all the way to the Jordan. And they went across the Jordan. So who ends up on the other side? The, the, there's the dividing line. Here's the city of Gamla. And who ends up on the east side of the, of the Jordan River? The Zealots. And that's where they end up congregating. So many of those people got pushed to that side of the Jordan River by the king of the Jews, Herod the Great. Now again, imagine Herod the Great's son now is king. And he says, hey, I'll tell you what, I'm going to put my capital city right here, three miles from the place my dad uh, um, slaughtered your relatives. Again, thumb in the eye to the zealots? Absolutely. And then names it after the Caesar who thinks he's a god. So it's, this is, you talk about, you know, this is an, an antagonistic move to, to raise the you know, let me show you my power. I'm going to come sit right in front of you where, where my dad slaughtered a whole bunch of your relatives. Okay. I hope you can at least understand they're being persecuted by their own Jewish king or half-Jewish king. All right, final, final person. Judas of Gamla. So Judas of Gamla, or Judas the Galilean, is now we're, we're somewhere around... 4 BC to 6 AD, he's the son of Hezekiah. So his father was the first guy murdered by Herod the Great. And he's the one who leads the, the attack on Sepphoris. So Judah of Gamla is a zealot leader from Gamla. He leads the attack on Sepphoris. He steals the weapons. And then he leads a revolt, a second revolt in the in 6 CE, this is the, at the time of the sentence, census. So now he's the third character, and he's the one who's actually going to start the, the now capital Z zealot movement. And let me show you a quote from Josephus. This one I put on your sheet to help you, because this is an important one. Josephus calls the zealots the fourth sect of Jewish philosophy. So he says, but the fourth sect of Jewish philosophy, Judas the Galilean was the author. So he's giving the zealot movement credit to Judas the Galilean. He goes on to describe them, and he says, these men agree in all other things with the Pharisees, the Pharisaic notions. Now, what he's saying they agree with is, theologically, the soul lives beyond your body, there's reward and punishment in heaven. 
So the wicked will be punished. They're just like the Pharisees, except they're radical Pharisees. So they're on the, the radical side of the spectrum. And he says, but they have an inviolable attachment to liberty. They will not be ruled by an oppressive government. And they say that only God, only God is to be their ruler and Lord. And you have to realize, remember, Caesar Augustus, 4 BC, or 4 AD, sorry, 6 AD, called himself Lord and God. And they refused to, to be underneath a Roman ruler who would take on a divine name. So this is the beginning of the Zealots. It's very close. Jesus is already alive when this is happening. It's right in his backyard. Sephorus had been sacked by the Zealots. He lives, you know, a few miles away from a mountainside where Herod the Great attacked the Zealots. He lives, he's right down in that cauldron of political, intense political ideas and philosophies. So if we go back now, now if you have your Bible, turn to Acts, Acts 5, because now we're going to see this is where Judas of Galilee or Judas the Galilean is going to enter our biblical text because there's going to be a history lesson here. And the context of the history lesson is it's after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, and the disciples are being persecuted for talking in Jesus' name. They're still following Jesus. And a noted Pharisee, now you're going to have to realize a Pharisee is about to defend the disciples. A noted Pharisee stands up in the Sanhedrin. The noted Pharisee is Gamaliel. That's Paul's rabbi. So he's connected to Paul. And he says, hey, look, we've seen these movements before. And the moment that leader died, they all fell apart. So, you know, stop fighting these disciples. Because if, if their leader died and it's not of God, if he's not the Messiah, it'll go away by itself. And then uh, he says this in Acts. But if it's from God, if God is behind this, if he is the Messiah, well, now you find yourself fighting God. So knock it off either way. It's a great little historical lesson that he's giving, but the historical lesson includes verse 37. After him, Judas the Galilean. That's, that's who we just led, ended up with. He's the son of Hezekiah, the first zealot. He appeared in the days of the census. He led a band of people in revolt. That's exactly what Josephus tells us. He too was killed. And then now scholars say, well, was he killed by Herod Antipas? And his followers were scattered. So very important to recognize this history is going to meet our New Testament, but it's, the, it's their very recent history up there in Galilee. And Jesus is right in the middle of it. Now I have to finish up and I'm, I know I'm a little bit behind. We had those, we had some more announcements at the beginning. Important thing to note here. It's really important when it comes to Jesus. And the question we have to ask is, are they robbers? Because some people translate the Greek robber or thief. Or are they rebels or insurrectionists? And there's a big difference between a thief and an insurrectionist. So if you notice this, um, we, we looked at this one earlier. And so this translation says, Hezekiah, a captain of a band of robbers. Now, when you hear robber, you think someone who's stealing. And maybe that means highwaymen, you know, attacking people along the roads. But the Greek here is a Greek word, lestai. And, and that's what gets translated into robbers. 
And this Greek word shows up in our New Testament. And it shows up in our New Testament at Jesus' crucifixion. So in Matthew 27:38, and if you want to turn there, go ahead and turn to Matthew 27:38. This is Jesus' crucifixion. Who was on his right and on his left who were also being crucified? And some people say the thieves. But crucifixion is not the penalty for stealing something. And the word that's used there is that word, lest I, that the same word that gets translated rebels. So let me show you. I'm going to show you a whole list of Bible translations of this one verse. Because thief or robber is too, it's not strong enough. I'm going to put on the screen a whole listing of them. So NIV now says two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right, one on his left. Rebels, notice, that's a little bit different than robbers. And by the way, just so you know, NIV updated their text in 2011. Their 1984 translation said robbers. So the NIV was updating based on this now thought about the zealots. The New Living Translation, the next one says two revolutionaries. That's even more accurate. But you can see how many of our Bibles say robbers, robbers, at the same time to robbers. Part of that comes from the King James. When the King James, which used to be the only translation, they translated it thieves. And that's where we get the idea that there's thieves on the crosses next to Jesus. They're not thieves. They're zealots. They're insurrectionists. They want to overthrow the Roman government. That is a crucifiable offense, not stealing something. So even the NASB has rebels. So if we go back to this Matthew verse, and it says, there were two rebels crucified with Jesus, one on his right and one on his left. Who did they think Jesus was? Because that word is the same word that's applied to the zealots as robbers or bandits. It's rebels, revolutionaries. So Jesus spends his entire ministry telling people that you have to learn to forgive your enemy. That you don't want to devolve into bitterness and anger and baseless hatred, hating someone for no reason. If you can't forgive, you're, you can descend right into that chaos of anger and bitterness. He wants your followers to pray for those who persecute you. And when it comes down to the very end of Jesus' life, who do they crucify him with? The zealots. The same people that he kept telling, no, don't go down that path. He was falsely accused of being an insurrectionist. Barabbas was an insurrectionist, and they let him go. It was a completely political betrayal. It's terrible. At the very end of his life, as he went completely against this, he's, he's lumped right in with the zealot movement. And we, we miss that if we translate that word thieves. They're not just common criminals. These are insurrectionists and the the politicians of that day, the religious leaders, lumped Jesus in with that group. And of course, that's a crucifiable offense. And you'll note, if you go through the book of Acts or even Paul, other people are trying to pin the Christians into the same category of being against Rome. Okay, it's all, this is all zealots. It, it takes a bit of history, build up that context of what we're reading about. We want our, uh, we, 
even though there's history in the New Testament, it's not a history book as us Westerners would like it to be. So we have to take the time to learn that historical context to say, why was it that those, so, those people were so passionate about obeying God and not being ruled by a, what they saw as a corrupt nation? So that's Sea of Galilee, part 14. 